Amen. Good morning. Guys, have a seat. Thank you to the worship team. Listen, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know there's a lot of great churches in Atlanta and a lot of great worship teams in Atlanta. We may not be the loudest, the flashiest, man, but I would put these guys up against anybody in town. They're awesome. So my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you're joining us online, uh, thank you as well for being with us. So we're picking up again in uh, Mark, in our series in Mark in chapter 9. Uh, we'll be, be there here in a moment. Now, it's been two weeks since we've been together, and a lot has happened, right? We had the snowpocalypse, or the, the snowmageddon last week, and uh, we all got to stay home in our PJs and sit on the couch and, and listen to Brandon uh, uh, give an awesome message that way. So we had, you know, we had that going on, but then something else happened that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, and I think congratulations are in order for all you Georgia faithful out there, right? <laughs> Georgia, after 40 years, won a national championship in football, if you didn't know. I don't know where you've been, but yeah, they won national championship. Um, hey, you know, I think something else might be in order too. I think a thank you might be in order for Alabama, right? Thank you for finally learning to share what you learned in kindergarten, letting Georgia, you know, play with the trophy for a little bit after all these years. So, and I was trying to figure out what was going to be worse coming into work that next day. It was like if, if they lost or if they won. Like, how, what, like, which would be more insufferable, Brandon if they lost or Brandon if they won? So, but I got a giddy Brandon and a happy Brandon all week because they won, so. But speaking about faith and teams, so the Bulldog season's over. The Braves won the World Series. The Falcons aren't very good right now. The, the Hawks aren't looking at, they're not looking too good right now either. But if you're looking to put your faith in another team, I got the team for you. Can we, can we get the picture? Can we get the picture? Oh, the Bengals and Joe Burrow run their second playoff game. They're going to the AFC Championship next week. You know, I'm from Cincinnati, so look, I'm taking applications after service. If you're looking for a new team to put your faith in, just, just let me know. We got, we got room for you. So it's funny, right? We, we put our faith in sports teams, you know, all across the board. We, put our, we have faith in these sports teams, and it's just a game, really, right? Just a game played by people that we don't know, and it doesn't really have much bearing on our life, whether it wins or lose. If college football went away, if the NFL went away or baseball went away, it really wouldn't change your life too much. But we have so much faith in these teams. If you think about it, we have faith in a lot of things in our life, things and people. Every day we have faith in things and people. Some of those are very important, like you have faith that your car is not going to explode on the way to work, right? Put some faith in, in that. You have faith in your spouse, and that, that's a good thing to have. But then there's other things like sports where, you know, you have faith in that, and it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. But when faith lets you down, you often hear people say that, well, you had a misplaced faith, that your, your faith was mis misplaced. So throughout the 90s, being a Cincinnati fan, and we had 14 losing seasons in a row, lots of people would say that my faith was misplaced, but I held on, and, and here we are. Now, I think oftentimes when I think about misplaced faith, I think I have to look at myself, because oftentimes I misplace faith in myself. Now, whether it's through my own accomplishments or maybe a little bit of pride or ego, you know, I often find myself biting off a little more than I can chew. Have you, have you ever done that? 
And it, some of you college students have probably done that, right? You're thinking, well, I, got this, I got this exam, I don't need to study, or I'll write that paper next week, like the day before, and you think, nah, I'll get a B, that's good. And then, you know, you, you, you do it, you show up, whatever, and you bomb it, like, ooh, you know, my faith was maybe a little misplaced. I think sometimes for me, I, I misplace my faith in, in my ability as a handyman. I think um, the hole in Brandon's office wall is an uh, example of that. You know, I knock the hole in his wall, and I'm like, I can fix that. Well, if, if we ever get a new pastor in like 20 years, and he goes to take down that whiteboard, he's going to find a hole in his wall, because it's still there. It's just covered up with a whiteboard right now. It's fixed, yeah. But it's not bad to have faith. It's not bad to have faith in people. It's not bad to have faith in products. It's not bad to have faith in your own abilities. But faith in worldly things, I think in the end or at some point, it's going to let you down. Faith in God will never let you down. What we're going to see in our text today is a lesson in faith in Mark. We're going to see what happens when faith is misplaced. And then we're going to see the power of God when our faith is properly oriented. Now, before we jump to our text today, just to kind of catch you guys up, I know it's been, it's been two weeks since we got back into Mark. I want to make sure we're on the same page. So Brandon kicked off the second half of the Gospel of Mark two weeks ago. Now, if you remember the first half, which we did last fall, kind of, we kind of got to this climactic point in the story, right in the middle of the book, where Jesus confirms what a bunch of people were thinking, that he is the Messiah, he is the promised king, he is who people thought he was, right? So there's this kind of elation that, yeah, he is this guy. But then he kind of drops a bomb on his followers immediately after that, saying, yeah, I am that guy, but I'm also going to suffer and die. And by the way, you're going to suffer too. So they're kind of wrestling with this now, trying to figure out how to deal with it. So about a week after that, we got our story two weeks ago from Brandon, where we see Jesus take Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain, and they have this experience with God. And Moses and Elijah show up, and they see Jesus transfigured, and they see the glory of God in Jesus. And you got these three disciples are trying to figure out what is going on, kind of freaking out a little bit. Peter makes a fool of himself, like Peter tends to do, wants to build some tents, and then the experience ends. It's over, and they start heading back down the mountain. And that's where we pick up in our text today, uh, Mark chapter 19, starting in verse 14. It says, when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, he has a spirit and makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John, coming down the mountain into the middle of some kind of commotion going on. So what's happening here? Well, presumably we have... There was 12, 12 disciples, right, 12 chosen ones, so three of them were with Jesus, so we have nine other ones who were left back. And these guys were attempting to do what Jesus has been teaching them. They were attempting to preach about the gospel, to teach, to heal people, to do all the things that Jesus had shown them how to do. But it wasn't going so well, right? They've caused a scene. 
they've ran into some problems. And the problem is this, is they're not able to do what they say they can do. Namely, drive out a demon and heal a boy. Now, of course, this draws the attention of their opponents, the scribes, these guys who are against Jesus, who don't believe who he is. So these guys come over, they see what's happening, that these nine apostles, disciples, can't drive out this demon, and they start arguing with these guys, and presumably calling out to the crowd, see, these, these guys are full of it. They're not, they can't do this. He's not the Messiah. They're just a bunch of false teachers. And the crowd comes in, and this, this argument kind of breaks out, and this chaotic scene. And as Jesus comes down, the people turn and see him coming. So then they flock to him, right? Because this, this is the guy who has answers. These nine guys, they don't know what they're doing, but this, this is the guy who has answers. So they all come running up to him. Now, while all this craziness is happening, Jesus is trying to figure out what's going on. There's a father in this crowd who is suffering because his son is suffering. I think the response that Jesus gets when he interacts is an interesting one because we don't see his disciples respond to him when he asks, what's going on here? Why why wouldn't his disciples speak up and say, Lord, this is what's going on? Well, they're probably a little embarrassed. They're probably a little ashamed, right? They're saying they can do these things in his name, but apparently they can't. So they don't speak up. They don't own up to what's going on. Then you might think, well, the scribes will speak up, right? They're the opponents. They think they got some ammunition. Now they're going to speak up and, and lay it on even thicker. But it would seem that the scribes have maybe finally kind of started learning their lesson a little bit. Maybe they could argue with these nine guys, but they know every time they try to stand up to Jesus, he just puts them in their place and it blows up in their face. So they don't say anything either. But instead, we get a voice from the crowd, a desperate voice seeking help. We get a father who's broken, who's tormented because his son is tormented. And he says, I brought my son to you. I brought my son to them so they can help, but they can't. Now, why would him, or why would even the nine disciples think that they could heal this boy or, even, or cast out this demon? Well, it's because they've done it before. We see in Mark chapter 6, he commissions his 12 chosen ones to go out and do this, to teach, preach, and to heal, and cast out demons. And they do it. They go out and do it, and they're successful. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, they come back and share their testimonies with Jesus that they were able to do these things in his name. So what's happening now? Why why are they unsuccessful? Why can't they do it now? Let's pick up the story in verse 19. He replied to them, that's Jesus, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So Jesus, interacting with his father, he's probably a little frustrated at this point, kind of throws some shade at his disciples. Now, I love this about Jesus because he's not afraid to call people out. I think often we get this portrayal of Jesus that he's this passive guy 
who just doles out love and grace and mercy and just pats people on the back when they mess up and says, it's going to be okay, don't worry. But that's not who he is. That's not true at all. Now, it is true that he is full of love, grace, and mercy. But if you messed up, whether you're one of the nine or 12 or just somebody on the street, he typically called you out on it. And he called you out in a way that was full of love, grace, and mercy. Now, here we have his nine of his chosen ones. They've dropped the ball. And he calls them out. He says, you unbelieving generation. Unbelieving. But a better translation of the Greek word might be you unfaithful generation. Unfaithful. It says, how long do I have to be with you? How much more do you need of me? You've been following me for over a year, and you still don't get it. And it's not that they couldn't heal the boy. They had the ability to, to do that. But what's happening here, what we see here, is that there was a shift in their faith. See, their faith has shifted from reliance on God to a reliance on themselves. That I got this. I can heal this boy. I've done it before, and I can do it again. I think success can often breed complacency. It can swell our pride and our egos. I think this happens in all aspects of life, whether you're a student or in your career, in, in your life. You, you know, success can, can breed complacency. You have to be careful. But I think this happens especially in our walk with Christ and our, in our faith. And that's why he's calling out his disciples like, you've tasted a little bit of my glory. You've been with me for over a year now. You think you're good. You think you've got this, you unbelieving, unfaithful generation. Now that's, that's pretty tough love, right? But it's truth. But he follows up with compassion. And he says, bring the boy to me. And as they bring the boy near, like all evil spirits that Jesus has come into contact with in the Gospels, it responds, right? It throws the boy into a fit. It doesn't want to be brought to Jesus because darkness doesn't want to be brought into the light. And Jesus, in his compassion, he engages with the father and asks how long he's been like this. And we get this father, probably unsure what's about to happen, broken, desperate. He tells Jesus he's been like this since he was a young child. It's nearly killed him multiple times. You can imagine the desperation this father has at this point. And if you're a parent and you've ever had a sick kid and you don't know what's wrong with them and you take them to the hospital and you're waiting to hear from the doctor, just how that feels, the anxiety. And finally, the father says, if you can help us, please. If you can. Now, I love how Jesus responds to this in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the, a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And it came out, shrieking and throwing him into a terrible convulsion. The boy became like a corpse. So that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. Now, this is the first time in any of the gospels, I think this may be the only account in any of the gospels, when someone who was looking for healing from Jesus questions his ability to do it. Usually, people are begging Jesus to heal them. 
Usually we see people saying, Lord, if you're willing, please, begging for healing. And sometimes we just see Jesus healing people. When he sees a need, he'll heal somebody. He just does it out of his goodness. But this guy's different. This father says, if you can. Immediately, this guy has doubts. He doubts. And maybe rightfully so. His son has been like this for years. Nobody's been able to help him. He's full of doubt. Jesus, in response, says, if I can. What do you mean? What do you mean if I can? Of course I can. Everything is possible for those who believe. Now, let's pause there and quick sidebar. Because this is where some people can twist twist the gospel a little bit, twist Christianity, twist this message a little bit. Because he's not saying everything will happen for the one who believes. He's not saying believe and it will be done. He's not saying name whatever you need and I'll do it for you. He's saying if you believe it's possible. There's a chance if you believe. But there are some preachers, there are some churches and teachers out there who will say, take a verse like this and lie to you, and they say, all you have to do is ask, and God will give it to you. That you will just ask God, and you'll have this prosperous life. That's a lie. The Bible teaches much more about suffering than it does about prospering. Is it possible for God to heal those who believe? Yes. I believe that wholeheartedly it is possible for God to heal. We see it in the scriptures, and we see it in our everyday lives. Why doesn't he heal everybody? I don't know. Why didn't he heal my loved ones that, that we asked for healing, or your loved ones that you asked for healing? I don't know. But what I do know is that he promises eternal healing, something that's way, more better, that's way better than prospering now, it's prospering for eternity. If you put your faith and trust in him, you get to prosper for eternity, not in the here and now. So just be wary of what you hear, what you listen to, uh, of preachers or teachers coming in the name of Jesus, because if it sounds like it's something about prospering, you might want to look at the scripture, because there's a lot more about suffering than prospering. Okay, back to the text. Jesus tells his father to believe, tells him to believe, and he responds. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. The text actually tells us he cries out. He says, yes, Lord, I do believe, but I have doubts. Yes, I believe, but I'm unsure. Yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, I don't know about you, but that's my every day. And I just love the honesty of the father there because he said, I believe, but I need help. You know, people, since I got into ministry, people ask me, do you have doubts? Do you, do you struggle with this sometimes? Of course I have doubts. I got doubts on doubts on doubts every day. Every day I have to tell God the same thing. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. As I read the Bible, as I pray, as I try to be a godly husband and father, as I try to navigate my career, say, Lord, I believe in you. I believe in your word. Lord, I love my family and I want to serve them. But Lord, help my unbelief because I have doubts. I have doubts in you and I have doubts in myself. But it's okay. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to not have it all figured out because we're human. 
We're flawed. We're broken in a broken world. But he isn't. We see Jesus take that flawed belief, takes this father's flawed belief with all of its doubt and works a miracle. Calls the spirit out of the boy. Spirit seems to try to harm the boy as it goes. People think he's dead. Jesus reaches down, lifts him up, renewed, the same way he does for us. Let's finish with the last two verses. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. All right, so after all the commotion, Jesus coming down the mountain, he's thrown some shade at his disciples. We get this desperate father. Jesus heals the boy, casts out the spirit, and then the 12, kind of, they slip away into a private place with Jesus. Now, naturally, they want to know why, right? They've been following this guy for a while now. They want to know why. You said we could do this, but it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Why couldn't we do it? And I think the answer Jesus gives is a little bit surprising. It's not the one I, I would expect, but he says, this one can come out only by prayer. Now, I think this brings up a couple questions for us. One, I thought, I thought this was a lesson on faith today. And two, why didn't they pray? They're followers of Jesus. Why didn't they pray? Well, the answer is this, this is a lesson on faith. And they re the reason they didn't pray was because their faith was misplaced. Their faith was in themselves, so they weren't going to pray to themselves. But if their faith had been properly oriented to God, who had the ability to heal the boy, then they probably would have prayed. They probably would have asked God to heal the boy in his power, not their power. But their faith was misplaced. Now, I love this story. This is probably one of my favorite stories in the gospel and you can see the same encounter in both Matthew and Luke as well. And I think one of the reasons I love it so much is this: I can relate to the disciples and to the Father. It's often dangerous to read yourself into the Bible. That's not a good habit to get into, reading yourself into the story, because it, it doesn't always work that way. But here I can relate so much, because like the disciples, my faith is often misplaced. But like the Father... My faith has doubts. I struggle. But here's, here's the big idea. Here's what I hope you can take away from the text today. Is that faith apart from Christ is destined to let you down. Faith apart from God, from Christ, is destined to let you down. But faith in Christ, while difficult, while hard, while challenging, it's never going to fail you. Now, that doesn't mean, like I said, to, to not put faith in anything. You should have faith in things. It's good. You can have faith in your wife. But if, you, if you've been married for more than a few weeks, she's probably let you down. Or if you can have faith in your husband, but if you've been married for more than a couple hours, he's probably let you down. <laughs> you can have faith in your car, but eventually it's going to let you down. You can have faith in your career, but you, eventually you're going to have problems, you're going to have struggles. You can have faith in the Georgia Bulldogs, and it might take 40 years to win a national championship. Yeah. Faith in worldly things, it's not bad, but it will let you down. Faith in God won't. 
faith in God will never fail you. All right, let me give you a couple takeaways from the text today before we wrap up. Number one, helplessness, not holiness, is how we access God. Helplessness, not holiness, is how we access God. See, helplessness refers to our inability to do something in and of our own power. We can't do it alone. Whereas holiness, when we talk about it in the scripture, it means that we're set apart. We're different than everybody else. We're sacred. Now, that might seem kind of counterintuitive, right? Because if we want to access God, don't we have to be holy? Doesn't the Bible say, uh, Peter, I think he says, be holy because I am holy? So shouldn't we be holy? Yes. But don't forget where your holiness comes from. It doesn't come from you. It comes from Jesus. For thousands of years, God's people tried to access God by becoming holy, by attaching themselves to a law, becoming legalistic, try to be holy, and it failed them. That's why he gave us Jesus, because apart from God, we are helpless. We cannot do it on our own. No matter how far along you are in your Christian walk, no matter how deep you are in your faith, you are helpless apart from God. It's God that sets us apart. God that makes us holy. Jesus that makes us holy. And he does it through our weakness, not through our strengths. And that was what was going on here. The disciples, they didn't get this yet. Right? They thought they had the power. Right? They, they were part of Jesus' entourage. They've been following this guy around. Right? They're finally getting some status and some street cred. So they thought they've made it. They forgot about their helplessness before a holy God. Now, the father in this story, he was helpless. He had nothing to bring to the table except a weak faith, just a little bit of faith that had a whole lot of doubts. But even with a weak faith, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. See, where we are limited, he is unlimited. Where we doubt, he is our blessed assurance. We're finite, he is infinite, and when we are weak, he is strong, and we experience the power and the presence of God when our faith is properly oriented towards him, not towards us. When we can recognize our helplessness apart from God's holiness. Number two, we strengthen our faith through the power of prayer. We strengthen our faith through the power of prayer. Now, the Bible tells us that faith without works is dead. Now, this doesn't mean you have to work or do anything to save yourself. Christ saves you through his work. But what this does mean is that through Christ's saving grace in your life, there should be some kind of product, right? There should be fruit from your life, from him working through you. I think the same is true of prayer. I think we could say, Faith without prayer might as well be dead too. See, faith enables us to draw near to God, and you draw near to God through prayer. As we draw near to God through prayer, we experience the power of God, and it enables us to pray and communicate with him all the more, and you kind of get into this cycle with the Lord. 
That's when you hear people talk about having a relationship with God, right? You do that through faith, through the power of God enabling you through faith, and then prayer, drawing near to God through prayer. And that's what the disciples were missing, right? They were relying on themselves. They didn't even think to pray. They didn't even think to ask God to help heal that boy because they, they had it, right? They're going to call out that demon. They're going to cast him out. And we experience the power and the presence of God through prayer. Our faith is strengthened through prayer. So then the question I have for you is where is your faith? Where is your faith placed? Is it in your spouse? I hope you have some faith in your spouse. I really do. Is it in your church? I hope you have some faith in us here at Mercy Hill. But your spouse is going to let you down. If you're around here long enough, Brandon and I are going to let you down. If you drive your car long enough, it's going to let you down. If you work at the same company long enough, it's going to let you down. Your degree is going to let you down. When you think you're, gonna, you're perfect for this job, and they're going to be like, no, nah, you're not the best candidate. Worldly things are going to let you down. But that's okay. It's okay to have faith in those things. As long as we keep our eyes on the prize. As long as we keep our eyes and our faith oriented towards Jesus. And it's hard, right? Because everything in this world wants to pull our eyes away from him. Wants to pull our faith into the world. But I think if the last two years have taught us anything, man, the world is just going to let us down. We think that humanity has advanced so far. We put faith in science and medicine and politicians and all these things. And it just keeps letting us down over and over and over again. So where is your faith today? It doesn't have to be a lot. It can have doubts. You can be unsure. But if your faith is in him, he can work miracles in your life. If your faith is in him, he's already worked the greatest miracle. He's covered your, covered your sin with the sacrifice of his son. He's given you an eternal promise. You might not prosper here and now, but you will prosper for eternity. So where is your faith at today? Where is it oriented? Let's pray. Um, listen, I want you guys to take a second. Let's just bow your heads, close your eyes, and I just want you to take an inventory, take a, a self-assessment right now. We're just going to have a moment of quiet, and the band's going to come up here, but just think about your faith, how much of it you have, how little of it you have, where it's oriented at. Just think about your faith as we pray. Think about what God has done. As a people who were unable to draw near to him, helpless, think about him sending his son to the cross. The Messiah, the king, the true king, became the crucified king so that we can be reconciled to God through faith. 
Not a perfect faith. But faith. Full of doubts, full of worries, full of fears. Just a little bit of faith. 